This is the Bad Hops Podcast, a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score. So, if you're looking for the win-loss total of the Mets under owner Joan Whitney Payson, or want to know the career wins and batting average of two-way player Mamie Johnson, this is not the place. But if you want to know how to crash through the glass ceiling at Cooperstown, welcome. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Butler. And I'm Jackie Micucci. And today, we are talking about baseball's leading lady and her influence on the Negro Leagues. Welcome. Bad Hops. Hey, Mark. Did you know that there is actually a woman in Cooperstown, a woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame? I did know that because you told me, (laughs) but I'm also here to learn, laugh, and be surprised by things. So I don't know a whole lot about her. Okay. And I'm very excited. We, we've had a recent episode about women in baseball, which was a blast, current, mostly focusing on current day women in baseball. So I'm excited to go back to the olden days, my favorite time, and find out more about this mysterious leading lady. Well, it was interesting. So if you look on, at the Baseball Hall of Fame website, it, they dub her as the first woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame, not the only woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So that means that the, the Baseball Hall of Fame is leaving the doors open for more women. So I did notice that was that was very interesting phrasing. That was definitely a word choice for them. So I thought before we get into the first woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame, who do you think might end up in the Baseball Hall of Fame? We've talked about a few women in past episode. Has anyone? Do you think anyone's come to mind or anyone in the past who has not gotten in as far as from either an ownership or the American Girls Baseball League? Anyone that you think might end up someday in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, I mean, obviously, you're, you're baiting me. You already know the answer. It's Madonna. Of course, there you go. I don't think Madonna has egotted, but I think we could get her a C-got if she could get into Cooperstown, then win an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. So yes, Madonna, we are we're on your side. Actually, you know, I don't know if we're on your side anymore. Eh, not anymore. Not anymore. Ignoring a person who is famous for being in a baseball-related movie. Well, and of course, then I can also just suck up to you and nominate you, Jackie, as a Hall of Famer. We need a few more episodes under our belt, but I got a good feeling about this thing. Okay. But speaking of Jackie's, actually, the person that I would nominate first would be Jackie Mitchell, who is someone that I want to talk about at length in the future, because she is the woman that struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in one inning of an exhibition match. And she went on to play minor league ball in a men's pro league back in the 30s. I think everything was sort of loosey-goosey back in those days. There, Obviously, there are lots of people in organized baseball looking to throw up roadblocks for people. But when somebody interesting comes along, yeah, rules get bent or doors get held open for a little while. And so Jackie Mitchell, who pitched for the Chattanooga Lookouts, which nice. is another another great team name that I would throw out there, she struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in 1931, and those two fellows were fairly hard to get out in those days. I would think so, yeah. I would also uh, nominate Edith Houghton, who began playing professional baseball at the age of 10. 
Wow. She, she played for the Philadelphia Bobbies. She actually traveled to Japan when she was 13 to play in an exhibition match against men. I think it was a girls team, and I would normally say a women's team, but I believe that they were all teenagers. So I think it might be safe to say a girls team in this case. And then she ended up as a major league scout with the Phillies after she actually <laughs> became an adult. <laughs> <laughs> and what, when was this? Uh, just curious time frame. She began playing when she was 10, so that would have been 1922, which is a little, like, kind of too modern for my liking. For but, you, definitely, yeah. But but I'll accept it, yeah. she. But she actually traveled to Japan in 1925 to play in an exhibition match. And I am really fascinated by what was going on in Japan in the 20s and 30s, because we also, in another episode, we learned about uh, Jimmy Bonner, Mm-hmm. who was the first black player to play in Japan well before black players actually played in Major League Baseball in America. That was also in the 30s. So I, I think there's some very interesting times back then. Let's see. I would also throw Tony Stone, who was a pitcher in the 40s and 50s. She played for the Indianapolis Clowns, kind of in the as the Negro Leagues were winding down uh, after the the color barrier had had broken in Major League Baseball. Someone else that we shouted out in the intro, Peanut Johnson, Mamie Johnson. I, I like to call her Peanut Johnson. I do like that nickname. She was very, very little, <laughs> hence the name, right? Yes. yes. She was the first woman to pitch in the Negro Leagues, and she had a 33-8 and win-loss record. So good for Peanut. Yeah. Impressive. So those are those would be some of my nominees. I'd also make sure that the All American Girls Professional Baseball League, the league that was immortalized in the movie A League of Their Own, starring that singer. I can't remember her name. But she she wasn't really a star. She was more of a, a role player in that. That was Gina Davis and uh, Laura Petty. Laura Petty. Yeah, Laura Perry. What is her name? Anyway, Lori Petty. Lori Petty. Thank you. Tank Girl. Tank Girl. Tank Girl. Very much. You're welcome. Those are all great, great nominees for the women who were in uh, the All-American Girl Baseball League. Is that what it was called? I know I'm going to mess up that name. They did have a special exhibit for them, but none of them have been officially inducted into the Hall of Fame the way this woman who I'm about to speak about And I should tell you her name because I haven't said her name yet. Her name is Effa Manley, and she was not a player. She was an owner of one of the more successful teams in the Negro Leagues, the Newark Eagles, which started out as the Brooklyn Eagles. She was from the business side of the game is where she came in. But I do think it would be nice to see some players, some female players get into the Hall of Fame. But we can dive into that. I definitely I'm excited to dive more into that in another episode with you, Mark. Just a reminder to our listeners, we did a recent episode of Women in Baseball that focused on Kim Ang, who is the, the first female general manager in Major League Baseball, Alyssa Nocken, who was the first on-field coach in the game, and a number of other pioneering women that are currently active or have been recently active in the game. So I would definitely put Kim Ang out there as a Hall of Famer because of of the breakthroughs that she's had. But yeah, let's see some more people. So hats off to Cooperstown for essentially saying the first and not the only. 
Exactly. So let's talk about the first and hopefully not the only woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Effa Manley. First of all, I'm going to give you my sources so I do not forget them. They include the Baseball Hall of Fame website, Wikipedia, of course, Effa Manley's own memoir, which is Negro Baseball Before Integration. But mostly it's a book I read called Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues by Andrea Williams. It is an Amazing book, really well done, not just about F.A. Manley, also about the history of the Negro Leagues. It is a YA book, so it's really for young adults. But honestly, there was a lot of good research, a lot of good information in it. So I would I highly recommend it. If you have any interest in F.A. and the, and the Negro Leagues in general, it's a it's a it's a really well done book. When Ted Williams was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in July of 1966, you remember July of 1966, don't you, Mark? I was only 40 years old then, so of course I I remember that. (laughs) Exactly. And I hadn't realized this. He said in his induction speech, I hope that someday the names of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson in some way could be added as a symbol of the great Negro players that are not here only because they were not given the chance. Then in the summer of 2005, so that's like, what, almost 40 years later, the Hall of Fame decided to assemble a special committee to nominate members of the Negro Leagues. Out of 94 names, they inducted 17, and one of them was Effa Manley, owner of the Newark Eagles, and that they got inducted in July of 2006, so it was the following year. So she was the only woman who was selected out of that class among the Negro Leagues. But she, as you will learn, she had a big, big influence on the game and on the Negro Leagues and she and on integration, because she was very much about integration of the leagues. And we'll learn more about that. And I will say before I get into her life, because it is there's a lot that's going that goes on in her life. This is going to be a two-parter. So this is going to be new for us. We're going to we're going to do this is going to be part 1 and we will uh finish it off in the the next episode, part 2. So stay so tuned. So we're going to have a cliffhanger and everything. We're going to there's there's going to be like a, an accident, a nuclear power plant. That's right. We we that's won't know right. if she makes it or not. I don't well, I don't know what what peril uh people faced in the 30s and 40s. I'm I'm sure there was plenty of it. Yeah, I think there were there was there was quite a few. <laughs> so we'll, we'll cue that that old Melrose Place music at the end and fade to black. You know, that guitar, that guitar riff that they used to use all the time. <laughs> oh, Billy, Billy, are you okay? <laughs> now, Effa owned the team with her husband, Abe, from 1935 until they sold it in 1948. But they very much ran the team together, and Effa was really in charge of business operations. So while Abe, he had been a baseball guy, so he was more of kind of like that glad-handing, you know, keeping the guys happy persona, she was all about running the team as a tight ship. She managed the payroll. She negotiated contracts. She worked to improve conditions for the players. This is something that people probably won't think about, but that they had... Um, the best available hotel accommodations when they were traveling, because as you know, this was during a time when America was very segregated. Simply traveling from ballpark to ballpark was a Herculean task. As a result, Manly was actually very active in the civil rights movement for her entire life. So let's go back to where it all began. Effa Louise Brooks Manley was born on March 27th, 1897 in Philadelphia. According to her own memoir, 
Effa was the product of an affair her mother had with her boss, who was a wealthy white stockbroker named John Marcus Bishop. Now, I bring this up because her mother was also half black and half white, and her father was white. So as a result, Effa had a very light complexion, so she could, quote unquote, pass. Given that America was very segregated at that time, that put her in interesting situations and gave her a worldview that was a a little different than some of her friends and family in the Black community. But she was always very involved in the Black community. And from the time she was little, she saw what segregation did because she had this view because she had a very light complexion. For example, when she was in the first grade, The principal of her grammar school pulls her into her office and asked her, why are you playing with the colored children? Effa was very taken back. And now even though her school was integrated, people did not like black kids play with black kids, white kids play with white kids. So it was like, well, what are you doing playing with the black kids? I'm a black kid. Why wouldn't I play with the black kids? But just the fact that the principal pulled her, I mean, could you imagine Although, honestly, you know what, nowadays, I, I you know, what I shouldn't even. <laughs> yeah, uh, sadly, I can imagine that might have happened today in 2022. But yes, I, I think it would have probably been a scandal. I, it, it surprised me that there was an integrated school back in, in those days. Although one of the things I'll talk about a little bit later is I was surprised at the level of integration that appeared in baseball until it didn't. Yes, that definitely did happen. Now, she was in Philadelphia, and so schools were definitely integrated, and it wasn't quite as segregated as certain areas of the country, but there was still a segregated mindset. This was a a world that Effa learned to navigate from a very early age. After she graduated from high school in 1916, she moved to Harlem. Harlem, as you may know, was a mecca of Black culture, music, and business as well. And I actually hadn't realized this. The reason why it became you know, an enclave for the Black community was that an entrepreneur named Philip A. Payton launched the Afro-American Realty Company. And he began renting to people of color in 1904 because what had happened was that at the time, the Jewish and Italian immigrants that lived in Harlem started to migrate out. And so there was all this real estate. And he said, "Okay, I'm going to take it over. And as a result, it created this vibrant center of culture for the black community in New York City. As a young woman in Harlem, Effa got a job as you love this role. She's she got a job as a, a milliner. Oh, yeah. Sort of haberdashery adjacent. Exactly. A milliner. So she was in the hat world. She also moonlighted as a model, taking part in fashion shows that were set up by Harlem Socialized because she's a very, very pretty woman, very elegant woman. At that point, when she first uh, came to Harlem and she had been there for a little under a year, she met her first husband, Charles Bush. That marriage was short lived. That marriage only lasted a year. Effa, because she was in New York, was very enamored of baseball. And her favorite team was, Mark, I know you're going to love this. Her favorite team was the New York The Brooklyn Dodgers. (laughs) No, her favorite team was the New York Yankees. And she would walk to the polo grounds, which was where the team played until 1923. And she was a huge fan of Babe Ruth. She said, I was crazy about Babe Ruth. I used to see all the Yankee games, hoping he'd hit the ball out of the ballpark. Now, I bring this up that she was a huge Yankee fan and she would attend all the games because 
while she was attending a World Series game that the Yankees were playing in in 1932, she would meet her future husband, Abe. And Abe was 15 years her senior, and he had an established reputation in the community as a baseball man. So they bonded over that. They bonded over their love of baseball, and they were soon married after they encountered each other at the World Series. I would love to have known, like, what, like what went on? Was she like talking about the box score, and he was just like, "What?" <laughs> I, I got a little Melrose Place on the brain, so I okay. am curious. I wonder if he was had fallen for her twin sister, who was a New York Giants fan, and then mm-hmm. he met her. Yeah, I, I think any number of intrigue. Let's just say they met cute. This sounds like a meet okay. cute. Okay. It does, it does sound like a meet cute. Well, they ended up getting married in June of 1933, and they moved to an apartment in Harlem's Sugar Hill neighborhood. Now, that neighborhood was home to a lot of luminaries, including future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall and musicians Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway. So that was quite the neighborhood. And also Big Bank Hank, I think, from the Sugar Hill Gang. Well, but yeah, that, 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 that was later. That, that's that was, a little bit later. Yeah. yeah, a little bit later. A little bit after Effa. It was a wealthy man, and he bought Effa a five-carat engagement ring from Tiffany's. And she liked to recount the story of how when they went into Tiffany's, you know, there was this, this big black man who had the money to buy her this engagement ring, and she just loved the look on all the faces of the, of the people working in the store. Ethel liked to dress up. She liked to, she was very much into fashion. She liked to wear her furs. And she could have just sat back and been part of the of Harlem society because she was this pretty wealthy woman. But she was very much aware that the vast majority of the black community faced big financial struggles. And that and that did not go unnoticed. And she was not going to sit back and just say, you know, I'm going to go to parties and pretend this isn't happening. At a dinner in 1934, she was seated next to William Davis, who was the editor of the Black newspaper, the New York Amsterdam News. She ended up striking up a conversation with him about how hard it was for Black women to find decent jobs in Harlem. Most Black women at the time, they served as domestic, so they were doing the cooking, cleaning, and child rearing of all the white people and getting paid peanuts to do it. During the conversation, Davis told Effa about a department store in Harlem called Bloomstein's. And it was a very famous department store that the black community did their shopping there. That was their store. It was one, it was the it was a big one on 125th Street in Harlem. Bloomstein's, 75% of their sales receipts came from black patrons, but they refused to hire black women to man their sales counters. They did hire some black people, but they were in low-level positions like janitor elevator operator, but they would not hire black people to actually be salespeople. So Effa knew this inequity needed to be addressed. So she began working with a man, and he's also very famous, very famous activist, Reverend John H. Johnson. And together they organized a don't buy where you can't work campaign. And they created a group called Citizens League for Fair Play. And these don't buy where you can't work campaigns were happening across the country because this was a common thing that would happen. So you'd have these white people who were making a lot of money on black people shopping in their their stores, but who refused to allow them to work in their stores. Very happy to take their money, not very happy to, to pay them to work there. The boycott lasted for more than six weeks. An Evers group marched in front of the store and they had the support of 
300 black churches, businesses, and civic organizations, along with the big black newspapers in Harlem. So they were getting a lot of attention. So finally, the owner of Bloomstein's called them in because he was losing a lot of money. Effa and the Reverend went in to talk to him. And she said there was a lot of back and forth. And then Effa said, you know, Mr. Bloomstein, we think just as much about our young colored girls as you do of your young white girls. And there's just no work for them. The only thing they could find to do is work in someone's home as a maid or become a prostitute. And now the guys were like, oh, no, no, no don't say that. How don't, don't, don't like, oh, they got all quiet and red faced and upset. And she said, I'm just telling the truth. Sometimes it's really difficult to hear the truth. Right. So after that meeting, they decided they were going to hire Black women to work the sales floor. And they did hire 15 Black women. But of course, the flip side to all that was they were mainly lighter-skinned Black women and they were mainly middle class. So it's still that we still have a class system going on. So that's a little bit about how EFA was very much ingrained in the Black community and very much aware. I'm very much involved in the civil rights movement. I mean, this is early on, but she would have this would be this would be a thread throughout her life. I will get back to the business of baseball and Effa's influence on the Negro Leagues. Why don't we take a break and we'll come back. I'll talk a little bit about a very quick history of some of the key points of integration and segregation in baseball. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. Jackie, I want to take you back in time, but I also want to take you forward in time. Because I want to start by throwing out a key date. In telling Effa's story, mm-hmm. you were in the early 30s. Is that correct? We are in the early 30s, right? We are, right now, we're just in the early 30s. Just like you and I are in our early in 30s. Our, in our early 30s. There you go. Perfect. A key date to remember is 1947. And that was the year that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier and joined Major League Baseball, which changed the world, but it also greatly changed the Negro Leagues. I bring this up because before 1947, baseball was segregated, or was it? I went back in time and I found some interesting articles from a guy called Lawrence Hogan, who wrote a book called Shades of Glory, and also some New York Times articles to go along with the the theme of the Negro Leagues. And I found some great stuff from the Center for Negro League Baseball Research at cnlbr.org. I was surprised to learn. So I've taken you to 1947. Now I'm going to take you back to 1855, which is my comfort zone. Your comfort zone, yes, yes, for sure. Because I love getting those telegrams, and I loved churning butter by hand. Those were some of my favorite things I still do. 1855, the very first game between two black teams. Well, it wasn't the first game that happened. It was the first game that was recorded And in case you're wondering, it was in Newark, and it was St. John's versus the Union Cubs. It was rained out after two innings, but it happened. I don't know that I could have immediately pointed to baseball games being played in 1855, let alone games involving solely black players. By 1858, the National Association of Baseball Players was formed. It's more of a league than a union of players, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that it says baseball players. I was surprised to learn that it included black teams and white teams and mixed teams in 1858. So right on, baseball started out, the first major organization in the game was integrated until 1867, where blacks were banned 
from the NABBP in order to court Southern teams, among other reasons. I think there were also just some straight-up racist dudes involved in the organization. Although it was interesting that this association also was very upset about the rampant rise of, quote, professionalism, which they saw as a conduit to gambling. There There was actually a faction... In 1867, that said baseball players shouldn't get paid. Everybody should just be amateurs. Oh, yeah. It's like the, it sounds like it's hearkening what went on with college football and basketball. Exactly. Please, let's, let's keep the purity of the mm-hmm. sport while, while well, we exploit everybody involved in it, exactly. much like the owner of Bloomstein's department store. Exactly. In 1886, the Southern League of Colored Baseballists was formed. I just love the sound of baseballists. We, we should use it. that more often, baseball. You know what? We're baseballists. Yeah. We're, we are. We're baseballists. We're not talking about play. We're not going to say the word player anymore after right nope. now. We're only going to talk about baseballists. But that was the first league for black teams, exclusively for, for black teams. It did not make it to the end of its first year in 1886. Meanwhile, in the 1880s, there were a number of, of pro teams professionalism apparently had won out. A number of pro teams had at least one or two black players on their team. But our pal Cap Anson, who was a superstar for the Chicago White Stockings, which is actually the team that became the Chicago Cubs. Well, of course. Owned by our good friend Albert Goodwill Spalding, who also Mm -hmm. thinks that women should not be involved in baseball whatsoever. Well, Cap Anson said he wasn't going to play against these mixed-race teams because he was enough of a superstar. I guess he was lighting up the telegram wires with his reputation. Mm -hmm. The teams had to capitulate and say, well, then we have no choice. We'll either bench the black players or we just will forfeit the game. Cap Anson's actions effectively cemented segregation in baseball. I'm going to get you up to the 1880s, and I think I will save a little of the stuff about the formation of the actual Negro Leagues for episode two or part two of the Effa Manley story, because I think as we learn Effa's journey to becoming a team owner, we'll also be, that'll be a good time to talk about the structure of the actual Negro Leagues. I was a little flat-footed to learn that Negro Leagues is plural because there was more than one, Yep, but they, they operated under kind of a loose arrangement where sometimes they got along, sometimes they didn't, much like the early American League and National League in the eighteen late 1800s, early 1900s. So next time we'll talk about the Negro National League, the Eastern Colored League, and the Negro American League. Effa's team, the Newark Eagles, was part of the National Negro League. Some of the things you talk about, I'll touch on because Effa was very much a consummate professional and businesswoman, and she really wanted the leagues to be run like a well-oiled machine. And unfortunately, that was not always the case. She was truly the business brains behind the Newark Eagles. She planned their schedule. She bought all the team's equipment. She arranged travel, as I said, for the games. And she was also a one-woman PR team. So she understood the importance of PR and marketing. For example, during the team's first season in 1935, the opening day festivities were held at Ebbets Field. And just an aside, and we can talk about this more when we talk more about the Negro Leagues, the owners of these teams would have to lease out 
the ballparks from the of the white team. So this was another expense and another thing they had to contend with as well. We can get into those logistics when we talk more about the Negro Leagues, but that was something else I had learned more about. You also can't talk about New York City without talking about subletting. Well, that's true. That is very <laughs> illegal sublets and legal sublets. Um, so, yeah, so the New York Eagles, their first season, they played in Ebbets Field. And for opening day, it included both teams marching from home plate to center field, an all black marching band, and none other than the little flower himself, the mayor of New York City, Fiorella LaGuardia. He threw out the first pitch. It was quite an event. This is a real blind spot for me. And it's embarrassing because. It takes the effort of researching something like this. I labored under the impression that until Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, there were just two separate paths. Yep. And white fans were going to Negro League games. Black fans were going to regular MLB games. Obviously, the mayor of New York was at a an all-black, quote-unquote, all-black baseball game. There were mm-hmm. white fans in attendance at Ebbets Field, I'm sure. It's interesting how many people were interested in some degree of integration, Mm -hmm. but maybe not all of it. Very true, because it does come up. I mean, Branch Rickey, who we'll talk about more later, he was not the first person who thought about it. There were others who thought about it, and not just members of the Negro Leagues, but other white owners who, who considered it, too. So yeah, it is definitely a journey. It is not a linear journey. And I think that's something I've I've learned about history. History is not linear. It goes up and down and all over the places, as uh, you may be experiencing now. As we're learning every damn day. Exactly. Back to the 30s. Eva was not just concerned about her team. She really wanted the Negro Leagues to be run at a high level of professionalism. But there were a lot of obstacles. It was difficult to keep top players because they would go where the money was. So for example, in 1937, Satchel Paige skipped out on his contract with the Pittsburgh Crawfords and went to the Dominican public to play because he was offered more money. And he also brought a lot of other top Negro League players with him. So there was always this bit of chaos, and this, you, and this happens throughout, where they'll, and they'll be asked to go to Mexico, the, or the Dominican, or other, uh, a lot of the Spanish-speaking countries would bring in black players, like the top black players, and they would lure them in with money, and sure, why not? I mean, you can, you can make top dollar, why wouldn't you leave? So there was a bit of chaos. Effa was appalled by this chaos, because she really wanted things to run well. She expected competition from her colleagues within the Negro Leagues for contracts. She had not anticipated that foreign teams would also be a threat to her business. So this was something she learned as she got more entrenched into the business of of baseball. It's interesting to me that we live in an era where Francisco Lindor signs a 10-year contract with the Mets for an astronomical sum of money Mm-hmm. which he will never earn out for the Mets, just saying. Yep. But there's no question that Francesco Lindor will always play for the Mets at this point. There's not going to be, oh, I think I might want to go play in Cuba for a while. Right. Contracts are so certain and so locked down that there's no chance of somebody jumping ship. But yes, I think back in those days, and we were also seeing this in the early days of Major League Baseball, where one team would just essentially say, hey, why don't you come play for us? Like literally right now. 
yeah, contracts were very different. They weren't airtight and there wasn't as much money being thrown around as there is now. And there wasn't as much money to be made as well. So I think they probably go hand in hand. I feel like but a lot of cash was being thrown around. I think there was a lot of cash being around. Suit, suitcases full of money. Uh, who doesn't want a suitcase full of money? Speaking of money, money was always an issue in black baseball. But Effa was very much committed to her team being well run. In her memoir, she wrote, paydays were the first and the 15th every month during the season, and we diligently met this deadline promptly and in all instances. So she was going to be very professional with her players. As a result, because she invested a lot in her players, she expected them to invest in her, and she wanted only the best in return. Johnny Davis, an outfielder and pitcher who played for the Eagles in the 40s, said, Effa had an apartment house on Crawford Street, and she'd get you down there, and boy, would she blast you. Maybe you didn't have clean white socks on your uniform, or you looked sloppy on the field, or your shirt was torn. Well, you're representing something in Newark. You walk down the street, you had to look not like a bum, you had to look halfway decent. You can't blame her for that. I love this. This actually sounds like what James Brown used to do to his band. If they missed a cue or if they missed a beat or if they came looking sloppy or they didn't have their moves down, you need to get the job done. So I love the fact that she she was the boss, clearly. The, yeah, and I think one of the things she she recognized was she knew there'd be more scrutiny on these guys because they were men of color. And she was absolutely correct because this was something they dealt with all the time. Your league isn't a real league. There isn't the same level of professionalism. So, you know, the, all the things that the, the white owners want through with them. So she wanted to make sure everything was as buttoned up as possible so that people couldn't say, look, see, 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 they, they don't know what they're doing. Look at them. Look at those, those bums, for example. One of the things she was also very much about was, and this is something I didn't think about either, is how, how box scores got into the papers. So, you know, normally you would have, uh, right, you would think reporters would be there. But with the, the Black Leagues, it was a little bit more difficult. And she really understood the importance of accurate reporting. And she pushed the other owners to report their scores immediately to the Black newspapers after the games. In early 1939, she even helped create a process that would simplify reporting the box scores for the Negro Leagues. After each game, the home team was to send the score to Ed Gottlieb, who was then the booking agent for the Negro Leagues and was also the co-secretary of the National Negro League. And he was also the co-owner of the Philadelphia Stars. Now, on Sundays and holidays, when Gottlieb's office was closed, the home teams were supposed to send their results to EFA. And finally, the full details of the game were then sent to Composey. That's not an easy name to say, Baz. Composey, because I want to say Posley for some reason. So Composey, he was the other secretary of the National Negro League and the owner of the Homestead Grays. Iconic um, team, yeah, absolutely. Exactly, iconic Negro League team. This was all done to ensure that the information was published in a timely manner. However, Posey was not incredibly reliable, and this was something she would encounter a lot with these owners. They had their own agendas where she wanted the entire league to be run well. They were more concerned about their team. This incensed Effa, and she wrote, I do not know what Posey's objection could be in refusing unless he wants to have the results handled by him in case the race is close and he might be able to do a little juggling. Why anyone should object to newspapers getting this information properly, I cannot understand. 
right on. I would say to that, that makes absolute sense, though. If you want people to care about your team, and what is a baseball season if not a narrative starting from opening day going through the postseason? You want people to be interested. A box score was the only means of communication in the the pre-television days, for sure. Certainly the pre-internet days. And even before radios were readily available, you needed some way to say, how did these lousy bums do this week or or last night? You read it in the newspaper. But if the score wasn't there, maybe you move on. You forget about it. You, You read Ziggy instead. Right. Or it's gasoline like a, alley. Gasoline alley. That sounds more old timey. But yeah, if it, if it wasn't in the, in the newspaper, then did it did it happen? I mean, a lot of people wouldn't know what happened. These were things she would count encounter all the time. For example, she felt that the National Negro League should elect a neutral president, someone who wasn't an owner and had ties to a team. She actually almost left the league because of this, because it never happened, because it was always, once again, so it was a boys' network, right? So it's like, who you know, what you know. But she wanted there to be a level of neutrality to say, no, this is this is how we should run things, not this like glad handing. And she really wanted it to be run like a business. And she felt like many oftentimes it was not. It was run more like like a side hustle. You can watch. You can listen to that uh, episode as well. (laughs) That's side hustles on Bad Hops podcast, wherever podcasts are podcasted. Thank you. Nicely done. Effa was definitely a big supporter of the integration of black players. She really wanted black players to eventually be accepted in the major leagues. She also wanted there to be greater respect of Negro League contracts. She felt it would be in the best interest of the Negro Leagues to form a partnership with Major League Baseball and perhaps have the black teams become farm clubs of the white ones. And at one point, she actually did meet with the president of the National Minor League of National Minor League Baseball. She wrote in her memoir, he was quite courteous, but I could see I was getting nowhere. And so the matter ended right there and then. I am starting to sense that there's three things holding Effa Manley back. She was black, she was a woman, and she was a visionary. Because you're talking about things that Major League Baseball is just now kind of figuring out some Mm -hmm. of these things of how to run this railroad so that people care about it, people are excited about it, and that there is a certain degree of credibility, reliability, and, and things like that. She saw it and basically got a lot of pushback as Black people did, as women did, and Mm -hmm. people with crazy ideas that just might work. And it sounds like most of her quote-unquote crazy ideas actually are working now. Indeed. She was very much a proponent of of integration. And uh, I, you know, it was interesting that she thought about having the Negro Leagues become a minor league system. But then something happened in May of 1945. Effa received a phone call from the secretary of the new owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey. He was inviting her to what she would later describe as, quote unquote, one of the strangest conferences I have attended in all my life. And that is where I'm going to leave you until next time. Dun, dun, dun. There you go. There's your cliffhanger. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited for part two. It's always interesting to see, like, you know, some of the players who were part of integration, obviously Jackie Robinson, um, we know that he, he didn't live in t- past his 50s. And there were other players like Elston Howard who played for the, he was the first player, uh, black player for the Yankees. He also didn't live past his 50s. So, I mean, the toll that these guys 
that this had on these guys, especially Jackie Robinson being the first, I can't imagine the pressure that was on them because it wasn't just you had all the hopes and dreams of your community on top of you and then all the scrutiny of the white community on top of you. I mean, the the fact that they were eight, and there were others besides Jackie Robinson who got called into the minor leagues that were going to be brought up, but they just, I mean, the, I mean, who wouldn't collapse under that pressure? Yes. It required a, a level of fortitude and resilience that most people don't have. Oh, and also you have to go out and play competitive baseball against some of the best people that have ever played the game. No pressure, kid. No pressure at all. Through it all, Effa was, she was a a big proponent of integration and she did her best and got into the Hall of Fame posthumously. Well, that's a spoiler. That is a spoiler. Well, thank you for telling this story. This was important stuff and we will see it for the next episode for part two. The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field and we will see you next time at the ballpark. That's our pal Ron Lewis on the stadium organ. And I'm Mark Butler. And I'm Jackie Micucci. And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited. Unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at at Bad Hops Podcast on Instagram and everywhere else. Go Eagles. Go Eagles. Go Eagles.